Hello and welcome to another episode of the Trial Lawyer Podcast. My name is Gabriel White of the law firm of White and Garner. Here with me today is Scott Powers of the illustrious law firm of uh, Snow Christensen and Martineau. Also, my partner Dan Garner, who works and toils here with me at White and Garner. Um, joining us also is Patrick Burt from the law firm of Kip and Christian, and we are going to be talking about the complicated topics of direct and cross-examination of witnesses at trial. This is advanced material that is presented in conjunction with our CLE series we do here in Utah, Litigation 101, as a fundraiser for the uh, Young Lawyers Division of the Utah State Bar. And um, we're hoping that if any of our CLE attendees have time, they can listen to this podcast and get some of the more advanced topics that we are not able to cover in the class due to restrictions on our time and um, because nobody wants to sit and listen for four hours of uh, CLE uh, material and the class is already two hours long. So um, please uh, enjoy the following discussion and uh, make sure and subscribe to our podcast in iTunes and uh, give us a rating. Let us know how we're doing there uh, when you get a chance. Thank you very much and I hope you enjoy. Today we're talking about um, kind of advanced topics and direct and cross-examination. Obviously, this is most applicable at trial, but has some some relevance to the discovery process as well. Um, but primarily, we're going to be focusing on um, on on trial work um, in this segment because we've already done one on depositions. Um, so, you know, we're assuming that our listeners already understand kind of the basic differences between direct and cross. Direct, obviously, just for those few who may be listening who don't understand the difference, a direct examination is when you're uh, examining a witness that you've called um, and you're not allowed to ask them what are called leading questions or questions that contain the answer. And cross-examination is... Um, where you're questioning a witness that is called by your opponent or who is hostile to your position, and then you're able to um, ask them leading questions. In fact, you should only ask them uh, leading questions. So um, why don't we start with direct exam, because I think there's, there's so little that can be done <laughs> from an advanced perspective to... Uh, with with direct to make direct better. I mean, my opinion is always kind of the client's story is going to be the client's story, and you can make the client a little bit better at telling the story, but every client seems to have kind of a limit of how much better they can get, right? Well, and that's always the tricky part too, right, is that how much can you really help them structure their testimony before you start towing that line of, coaching your witness oh i i think for a trial testimony i think you can you know as long as you're not ethically as long as you're not telling the client 
to say something that's untrue, I think you can basically tell them, you can write out their testimony for them and hand it to them and say, memorize this if you want to. Oh, gosh. I, I would agree with Gabe. The last time I had a trial, which, again, never happens with construction claims for whatever reason, but it was two years ago, I, I wrote the entire question and answer series down, and we went through it over and over again just so that when I asked the question, it wasn't a surprise. It was told in a, you know, a storyboard format so that the jury got this, you know, it got really fluid, easygoing answers. They felt comfortable with the story. The narrative was down pat, and uh, it, it just flowed, and it told a, you know, a, a story that I think really spoke to, you know, to the people that were listening to it, and I think you have to do that beforehand. How'd your witness do a trial? Did they stick pretty good to the plan, or did they... Totally. Absolutely. And it all comes down to how many times they've been through it. I think anybody, if you go through something long enough, it's just like muscle memory, right? You, your body does it enough times that it becomes a habit. Well, it becomes natural. And, and if you have, a, I mean, obviously, it, it's different if your witness is a professional witness. So if they're an expert. Oh, yeah. No, expert, this is a client. Or if it's about. a cop or if it's a, you know, a DEA agent or something, you know, you almost don't need to prep them because they, if they testify so much. You just want to go over highlights. And there's a difference with what their story is too, right? So if their story is emotional, and that's part of your theme and a big part of the But I still, regardless of the witness. Well, I'm I'm saying, so like a contractor, his testimony is just laying out what happened really, the facts. Whereas if it's an injury victim, and and I'm just, I'm wondering if there's a danger of being too prepared there where, and preparation is probably not the right word, you don't want it to, them to too look rehearsed. cold, rehearsed. Well, no, it, but it, it, it always depends on your witness, too. Right, and that's I mean, what I'm saying. Like, in, in your case, I think the preparation, I don't well, think there's a actually, danger of him It was actually an injury cold. case in, in, involving a mechanic shop. And, what, and this is just a good old boy mechanic yeah. who is not a professional witness. But what I wanted him to be able to do is to fit within the narrative that we'd been telling in Discovery the entire time and to do it comfortably. It wasn't necessarily a, a memorized series of questions, although by the time we were done, it was close. Right. But rather, it was a focus on telling the story and having that story be something that the jury can easily buy into and understand. And I, and I, and I, can, I, I agree with Dan a little bit, to a certain extent. A with, little bit? With regard to um, witnesses like plaintiff in a personal injury action where you want them to you're just basically asking them to tell the story and they're not likely to ramble but before we get into that just a brief word from our sponsors unfortunately most lawyers are never available when you need them many of them don't put your interests first the lawyers at white and garner do things differently We take each case very seriously. We will always put your interests first. We represent people who have been injured in accidents. We also handle commercial litigation cases. Other law firms assign your case to a paralegal or secretary and put that person in charge of managing your case. Getting your actual attorney on the phone can be a nightmare, no matter how important your case. At our firm, every case is important and every client gets our full attention. We only take cases that we are comfortable taking all the way to a jury trial. Every move we make helps us better prepare your case for trial. 
to get the best results at trial, you need a lawyer that is paying attention and that is not afraid of a jury. You need the lawyers at White & Garner. Each client of White & Garner has access to their attorney at any time, any day of the week. You can talk directly to your attorney about your case at any time, day or night. If we do miss your call, we will get back to you within 24 hours. If you hire a lawyer from White & Garner, we will be there for you when you need us. That is our promise, and we keep our promises. Okay, so we're talking, we've been talking about, um, you know, like I said, with the witness who you're just wanting them to tell the story, I think you can still prep them in, in a pretty extensive manner, but you, may, you probably don't want to go over question by question because you don't want them coming off like a robot, like they're just sticking to a prepared script. You, you want them to ad lib because hopefully by this point in the in the case certainly you know there shouldn't be i don't know i i've haven't had a case where my client getting up on the stand and saying something um will really destroy the case i mean their yeah. story is their story they've gone through it in deposition um and i think my whole point was there's a fine line of where a person can come off like, this isn't a big can. deal. This is just, I've told this story a thousand times before. And whereas you want them, you want them to be engaging, right? right. Every witness that you, right. and yeah, that, that was my only point. And I, there is a danger of, of that. Well, and I, so I, just, I, another thing I want to emphasize about direct, um, you know, uh, is that, you know, you, just like everything else, you've got to be cognizant of your jury, of your judge, and of what they're, how they're responding to the questions. Because um, for, for good and for ill, sometimes, you know, if your witness is either doing a really great job or doing a really poor job, it may change the plan. I mean, you may hit a point where, you know, everybody in the courtroom has tears in their eyes. And your witness hasn't necessarily told their whole story, but they've told everything that you need, and it's time to sit down now. And, you know, rather than just keeping on milking that until the jury, you know, gets all that out of their system, maybe it's time to sit down. I've seen the opposite situation, too, where we had, um, in one trial I was doing in federal court, we had a witness, I say, I mean, this was in front of a really good judge, a young judge, but it was... Uh, he was a more formal um, judge, you know, we had to call everybody Mr. So-and-so, and nobody was allowed to use first names, and, you know, we had to stay close to the podium and things like that. And um, but this judge let the attorney who was trying the case with me, and it was doing the direct exams, I did the crosses, um, <coughs> do, you know, say to the witness, because our witness would get off track on tangents, because he was so excited about this technology that he'd created. So much so that he would go on and on and on and answer this simple question like, when that, what happened next? You know, and pretty soon he's talking about stuff the jury has no idea what it is and everything. And, you know, by keeping track of how the jury's responding and how the judge is responding, he's able to say, okay, okay I'm going to ask you that question again because that wasn't what I asked. I'm going to ask you that question again. I want you to answer it 
in 30 seconds or less. Okay, ask the questions as go. Now, normally that would draw an objection from counsel, be immediately sustained, you know, um, but you could see that both the witness and both the witness or the, the judge and jury were like, please, someone take control Rain this guy in. of this guy. And so nobody said a word. It was like, yes, we, we just need very little detail from this Supposed individual. Saying, I got a tea time at six. Yeah. This is, I mean, it, you so, know, interesting. Interestingly, that's probably the number one difference that I've noticed between experienced trial attorneys and inexperienced trial attorneys in examination of witnesses is the use of transitions. Um, I think younger attorneys are terrified to say anything more than their question. They want to say their question, get it out, and let the witness talk. They're worried about drawing objections to saying anything more. I've noticed all experienced attorneys will will preface their questions. You know, they'll do a transition of, okay, you finished telling us about this. I want to turn your attention now to this. And then they'll ask their question. And I've never seen a judge, an opposing counsel, or a jury ever be turned off by small transitions like that that help loop the story, that make this story Well, if, things, if it makes things go faster, mm-hmm. it, the judge is infinitely less likely to shut it down. And, and in my experience, most meaningfully sustained leading objections, meaning not one where the judge says, okay, technically it is leading, but I don't care, and says sustain, keep, just keep going. Um, but ones where they actually shut you down and make you move on um, is, is where it seems like the, the witness, you know, you may be testifying for the witness because the right. witness doesn't really know the story. Right. If, if it's clear that your purpose is to speed up... Facilitate. Facilitate, to speed up uncontested matters, to, to get the story out in an intelligible way where otherwise that would not be possible. So, you know, the child witness, you're almost always going to get to lead if you have a child witness and you're the, um, you're the party, parsi, party putting that witness up there because it simply is just not going to... You're not going to be able to get uh, the 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 witness to be able to really tell the story, unless they, um, you know, unless unless they're led. I so. think every with younger lawyers, I think every they always need to remember is who is the audience in that moment. So I think that's I think that's for for all attorneys, and I think that's yeah. that's good for everybody. Sure. I mean, one of the things I remember. Um, Roger Christensen, uh, you know, I used to work with him over at CNJ, and he was one of the trial counsel on the Campbell versus State Farm case, and it was a hundred and fifty million some odd verdict against State Farm um, in a bad faith case. And one of the things he mentioned uh, to me, he, he and and Rich Humphreys always like to tell stories about this case because it went on for so long, um, was that. It the, every day of trial, the back few rows were full of State Farm executive people, and it it seemed to them at least that State Farm was trying the case rather than trying it to the jury. Was really trying it. Their counsel was really trying it to 
the executives sitting on the back row until they would get the witness to say something would make them happy, even if the jury, I mean, apparently at some point some juror got so outraged by a question that he, you know, threw his pencil down and it like went shooting across the room. And they continue to ask these questions like, well, isn't this, a, this is totally legal, right, to do this and this and this? So there's nothing wrong with it, even if, you know, they're on a cross and, and you know, they've just explained why this totally screws the policy holder over. And everybody else in the courtroom realizes that. They're trying to make the point that, well, it's technically legal, so State Farm did nothing wrong, right? And, you know, the jury is sitting there looking at him like, are I you kidding? what directives the executive had given them at that point. I, you know, I, I'm curious, this, like, in my head I'm going, okay, maybe they knew they were losing this particular lose. case. You but know, it, they, it, he wanted to make sure that if you, you ever know, get, his client was going to hire him again, or if you ever executives were like, "Look, make it, make it so we understand what our future position should be," or I, you know, I have no. We could ask him. We could ask, yeah, we we could ask Paul Belknap to that. I, I suspect he he probably would be bound by attorney-client privilege not to answer that question, but um, but. Uh, you know, I don't. I don't know if it was their decision or if it was what they were directed. You know, if they were directed to handle certain issues in certain ways or whatnot. But because um, it doesn't make sense to me. Well, would, you know, and you know, if, if you think it does, if you think that if you think that you're you're absolutely going to win, so you've just misread the case and you're absolutely you're going to win, and you think all of these people on the back row control whether I continue to get State Farm's bad faith work. And so we're going to win the case. I don't need to worry about the jury so much. But these guys, I need to make sure they're happy with me. Yeah. So, and, and again, that, just that, was just, that was just Roger's perspective. They, yeah. That may not have been what the State Farm attorneys were thinking at all, but that was, that was their perspective on it, watching it kind of go down. That so, a, if that's the case, that was a major... Miscalculation. Uh, yeah, I'd say $155 million miscalculation before the U.S. Supreme Court got a hold of it and decided that somewhere in the Constitution there's something about ratios, which I haven't found that part yet. Maybe that's what that whole corruption of blood part means. The Utah Supreme Court said so. Yeah, and then yeah, but it, it got, got bounced back and forth a bunch of times. But that was the U.S. Supreme Court that. Yeah, the U.S. US Supreme Court. U.S. Supreme Court sent it back. Send it back. And Utah Supreme Senate. Court said, yeah, ratio seems good to me. Now, part of the reason the, the case <laughs> the case game. was finally resolved somewhere in, like two, in 2007 in the car accident that started the whole thing in 1980. And part of it was because there's so many issues and there were so many appeals. 1980? 1980 was when the car accident happened. Then there's the subsequent trial. It's about the trial. right amount of time to go between your accident and the, resolution. Well, there's, and then there's the trial that happens. In the underlying case, and there was the bad faith. You know, and then there, and then there's the bad faith, and then the bad faith action goes on. God heard and about it. And then it goes all the way up to the to Utah but, Supreme Court, and then the U.S. Supreme Court, and then, you know, the, there's there was a whole issue about the punitive damages statute about whether or not it was constitutional, and it was ruled to be not constitutional. And then the, the the state amended it. This case is like the patron saint of plaintiff Utah attorney. No, and there's and there's there's there is a book about it. 
I've always suspected, this is just Gabe, it's Gabe's theory. Gabe being Gabe. Um, because there are several points in the, what happened in the trial that are very similar to uh, what you see in, happening in John Grisham's The Rainmaker, that this may have formed some inspiration for, for, for his book. Like, for example, they found... You know, Roger always told me we got we had we produced more State Farm documents than they did. He said, and he said there was a we found an, an ex what an ex employee or whatever. Yeah, an extra no an extra. They found an ex employee that had a copy of the claims handling manual that had a chapter that State Farm had claimed didn't exist, and gets up and reads it. Has a garage full of papers. That's like the best part of that movie. Yeah, and it's where it's got all the damning stuff in it. So anyway, that's uh, just my theory. I have no idea whether he had... I don't even know if they... I don't even know when it was written, whether they were contemporaneous in time or not. But I, having seen the movie and heard the stories, I always thought, well, I wonder. Anyway. Um, we digress. We, di we seriously digress. Um, so, I mean, I, I think that covers kind of as, as advanced as you can really get in, in direct exam. I mean, going over with them, I, I have heard of some people using a video camera um, when the, the witness just does not realize how badly they come off, um, showing them and then helping them to improve that way. Um, storyboarding is obviously a... If have you guys done the video camera thing? No, I haven't ever. The, the last thing I would suggest is that we had a trial where we did all of this. We met with our client multiple, multiple times. We walked through the examination with him. We gave him rigorous cross-examinations. He was the president of our company. We did everything we could to prepare him. And when he got up on the stand, he fell apart. He had forgotten everything we had done. We talked about. He conceded everything. He looked horrible. How long he, before the trial did this happen? Because I, I wonder about preparation too far in advance and then it just falling out of an ear on the way to the we courthouse. Did, we did both. I usually, we, I usually we, prep the day, bef the day before. I, I, I think that doing it as close as possible to the date where they're Which actually going to do the show is the best. When clients, when clients ask, well, how much will the trial cost? And I tell them, well, you should plan on something somewhere between, you know, 15 and 18 hours a day of my time. Mm. And they're always like, wait, well, what? The trials only go eight hours or nine hours during the day. Why do you need... Well, it's like, well, I'm going to show up an hour beforehand because there's always going to be an issue we're going to need to work out with the judge. And then there's inevitably going to be something after the end of the day that we're going to need to deal with. And then we've got to prep the witness for the next day and deal with any new issues that have come up. And so it, you know, it, uh, you know, it, and, and so that's one of those. So with your witness, do you think it was just... Anxiety, or I think that I think that as attorneys, a lot of times we don't appreciate the pressure that it is to be on the witness stand and feel like your all of your actions are being judged against you. So, with this guy, we prepped him. We started his preparation a month before trial, and then we did it all over again a day or two before trial. I mean, we had prepared yeah, that this sounds guy. Sounds like an anxiety issue. And and this yeah. guy just fell apart. And so my point is, is that. You can prepare a witness all the right way. You still have to be prepared for well, the wheels to fall off. How many times have you depot prepped a witness 
just with every single document that's going to come up and gone over it and gone over their method for answering questions. Like, just answer the question that they ask you, no more, no less. Shorter answer is always better. Go through all of that. Mm-hmm. And they go into the depot, and five minutes after you, the other side starts asking them questions, they're interrupting him to say, well, no, that's not the real thing that's going on. Here's what was... You know, and just feeding them extra information. They, have. I mean, right? Yeah. And so, so my recommendation is, unfortunately, when they're on cross examination, there's not much you can do to control that. You're kind of, you're kind of screwed if your client goes off the rails during cross examination. But if you have the unfortunate incident where your witness starts going off the rails in your direct, I like to have safe topics that I know that I can always fall mm. back on to. Oh. To get them back. So if you feel they start derailing, you're in control of the question. You can say, okay, hold on. Put a pin in that. I want to turn to a different topic for a minute. And go to something that's safe to help them build back up their confidence. Let them Let's get talk about idea. Cowboys football. Right. Well, right. Something that's safe and everybody can love, like safe. Cowboys football. Yeah. And I'm, <laughs> and, and Cowboys football. Yeah, I forgot that you okay. were a Cowboys fan. Um, I am not doing my job if you have if forgotten... I, that I am a Cowboys fan. <laughs> See, I didn't. You've done your job. Um, it's been a good right. week for you. So, it's been a really good week. So, so we've talked direct. Knock on wood. Colts fan. I know, right? Let's Knock talk about the real... Um, Raiders fans. So the real... It's been a bad decade or two for you. ...skill that one needs in order to effectively present a case. Um, Cross-X? Which is cross-examination. I, I, I have had... I, I hate direct exams because I never know what's going to hap- happen. Cross. Love cross. Several times where cross I've... examination is the funnest part <coughs> of the trial. Hands well, down. That I was closing. I was forced. Cross examination. Mm. I was fortunate enough to learn, you know, and have some of my initial trials where I um, would be, you know, nominally second chair with a much more experienced attorney, but they had handed the case over to me very early on, and I'd done all the motions work, all of the, um, all of the, all the motions work, all of the depots, and really had a good grasp on the witnesses, and so I was fortunate enough to work with some really experienced attorneys who would say, look, you tell me what part of this trial you want to do, and then I'll do the other stuff. Which witnesses do you want? You know, if you want to do the whole thing, that's fine. I'll just sit there and give you notes. If you want to do, you know, all the witnesses and I'll, and I'll do opening and closing, that's fine. If you want to do all the crosses. And invariably, I would choose to do, uh, you know, it, it, there'd be the odd case where they say, no, I want a piece of this witness. I remember a MedMal trial where it had gone on for many, many years before I'd been there and uh, there was just no way I was gonna be able to get Roger to let me cross-examine the 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 main doctor because uh, he was ready to chomp him in half, and he did a great job of it at trial. But um, the point is, is that you know, given the choice, I would always choose cross, and I always think of it, cross as really where I make my case, where I'm gonna win my case, and. The reason, part of the reason is, is because, you know, as a plaintiff's lawyer, I get the advantage of, you know, I'm always going first. 
And so one of my favorite things to do, and I've done it enough that I and talked about it enough, I don't think it's really a secret, is I love to call their main witness, it's the, the defendant or you know some some really important witness they've got first right out of the gate call them and cross them just right there because Utah's in most states if you call a witness that's opposing to you um, especially if it's the opposing party uh, you, you can you can treat them you don't have to ask for permission to treat them as hostile or during your like case that. in chief during your case in chief generally you can just ask them leading questions and treat well, them. Well, isn't that still technically direct examination, although because they're a hostile witness, you can just Te- open up uh, well, the door and go nuts? I, I don't well, think the rule, so. The rule doesn't say you can only... It's, it, it lists the category of the type of witnesses you can cross. You can use leading questions. Also. Yeah, so it's an different states... Witness. It's an yeah, adverse... Different states vary with regard to this, but in Utah, you know, adverse witness, you can call... Some states you can get away with it by all you have to do is say, you know, we'd like to call so and so for the purposes of cross examination mm-hmm. or something. But I just you can just call them. And yeah, that's right. That was my understanding. You, yeah, you can just call them and and cross them um, first, which is awesome because <clears throat> I don't have to worry about staying within the scope of the direct examination. I don't have to, you know, I may get another shot at them. Um, if they get called again during the defendant's case in chief, um, you know, and especially if I've done my job right in, in picking my theme, sticking to it, and getting testimony from this witness that supports it, you know, the jury, when they get back into the jury room, juries are smart. They understand that everybody, you know, they, they, they understand that either, either, you can look at it as either everybody lies or everybody tends to see things from their point of view. And so testimony from a witness, an opposing witness, that supports your theory of the case is automatically more powerful. I mean, it's almost like a stipulated, it becomes almost like a stipulated fact. Because if the defendant says it, and we agree with it, then it's really hard for opposing counsel to get up Afterwards, and especially if you've done your cross right, where you've led up to those facts um, with a series of individual leading questions, um, it re- becomes really hard for them to undo. Yeah, if you can present your theme or your, you know, your theory of liability right out of the gate through the mouth of the opposing party, you're set. Yeah, and and. You know, and especially yeah, but that not sometimes backfire on you though. Is during your how if they start telling their story right in the middle of the story that you're trying to tell. Oh, but they don't see. See, that's the trick. True cross examination is not really witness testimony. It's attorney well, it's not testimony. Argumentative either, right? So we want to stay away from. But but it's attorney testimony. Well, my witnesses on cross, they don't. Te- they don't. They see. They have two options. Well, what I'm yes saying is, if you no. if, argu- yeah. if you get into argument, and if they say no, then they get to say their side. And if they say no, then they get punished. Well, yeah. What what I'm saying is though is leave. You can't stop them from answering your question the way that they want to answer your question. Well, uh, you can. Yeah, well, if, depending with, on how you structure your question. I think so. With, if, if your yeah. questions are truly leading questions, a true leading question is really a statement. I think what Gabe's trying Gabe, to say. Gabe, do you still wet the bed? 
I think that I think it would be. <laughs> that's, not, that's not. That's not. That's not what I. That's not a true leading question. It was, it just answer like, the question. Just answer you, the question. It's a yes or no, Gabe. You, you, you it's went, a yes or no, Gabe. You went the bed. Do you still wet the, the bed? The question would be, you wet the bed. No. Do you still wet the bed, Gabe? I want to know the answer to this question. And it's a yes or no question, Gabe. No. Okay. So he no longer so wets go the back bed. To, yep. So go back to what Gabe said. <laughs> That's you right. You always anticipate the witness will lie or tell yeah. things from their own perspective. <laughs> no, I mean, seriously, though, if you, if you do your cross-examination right, really, it should it should come out as a... A series of statements of testimony well, that you give that you give more. that they either right. agree or disagree but with. Gabe, but it's, it's got to be factual statements. Like, but, oh, of course, you cross the street. Yeah, I'm not going to say like, right. well, you didn't have a license, right? Or you're 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 yeah. a, not you know, well, negligence. I'm, first cut, first element is is the existence of a duty, <laughs> correct? No. Well, I mean, what I'm saying <laughs> is, you don't you can because you can ask a leading question that gets is argumentative a little bit so sure you want to leave arguments for so closing the, so not in a lot not of that during is, your cross not so you could lay all the facts out of say in a divorce case lay out all the facts of the parent isn't the custodial parent right right x the other parent puts him to bed the other parent does dinner the other parent uh, makes breakfast and and then at the end you could ruin it all by saying, and so how on earth are you the custodial parent, right? So you're not the custodial parent, correct? See, and, so that's and a this leading is, question. This gets into what but a lot of what we cover, kind of in the more basic section. I mean, yeah. th- this is what the assumption that you already know that you already that the attorneys already know listening to this will already know the basics of of cross to the point where that is never going to happen. Okay, which yeah, the 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 three basic rules, and and I learned this from Roger God's course. You can do a a leading question that's not factual, right? But and it's an argument. Not if you do it if you do it right. So the three rules. Let me finish. The three rules: cross examination, leading questions only. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, one fact per question, and leading to an inevitable logical goal. Okay. So you break it down into, all right, Susie was there. Yes. Susie had a ball. Yes. The ball was red. Yes. Susie threw the ball. Yes. Susie threw the ball to Mike. Yes. Okay, Susie, Mike got hit by the ball. Yes. Mike fell down. Yes. Mike, then Susie called 911. Yes. What I'm saying is you you could use words like, uh, instead of threw the ball, you could have used the word like Susie hurled the ball. Yeah. Right? Still factual. Let's deal with that Probably going to... Be what's going to happen? No, what's going to happen if you use the word hurl? Well, it's going to be objected to. As what? Argumentative. Argumentative. You're going to lose. Eh, maybe. Susie hurl. What I'm saying is, is there's a way that you can and ask a leading question and be factual, and that's where you want to. That's where you want to. Right, but you don't want to be. You want to make your factual point. You don't want to hit them over the head with, "This is my argument." And I disagree because, in the in terms of word choice. Because word choice is extremely important. There's a very different feel 
when the witness says, you know, when the witness has testified that the plaintiff was hurled from the car versus the plaintiff, the plaintiff exited the car during the crash. One, one perhaps could be described as more argumentative of the other, okay? But the, the problem with it is, is if you fight me on it or if you object to it, I, I punish you. Well, sure. So let's think, go. Let's go over that example. Well, I'm, let's use the hurled from the car. Okay. okay. So, so then I say, so Dodd said. I think Dodd would say, "Don't use hurled because it'll be an objection. It'll be a distraction." This is what you should use is if you want to use exit or whatever. Fine. But then you go over. He went through the windshield. That's right? actually a, yes. He how far did he he travel? Right. Ten feet, right? And you go over the factual things. And so when the opposing counsel is trying to object to the fact of all these factual statements, he looks like he doesn't know what he's doing. So that's an example from, from Dodd's book and from his from his presentation. He yeah. actually uses that exact example. But the purpose of it is to get the so to punish the witness. Because what the witness starts to understand after you say, okay, so the victim left the car. Yes. He didn't leave through the door. No. He left through the windshield. Yes. Didn't take off his seatbelt first. No. Seatbelt came off. Yes. And he went through the glass. Yes. And suffered lacerations on his face. And at some point, the witness starts to, you're, you're impressing this on the jury so much, the witness starts to think, it would have been better if I had just said hurled. Right. Because the, yes to hurled. And then the next time you and what I'm saying it, is, forget the hurled. Just go over the step by step because I think it's more effective. Uh, and I and I think I think it's the the effective part of it is getting the witness, training the witness, to understand that every time they fight you, they will suffer the consequences. Sure. You take your time. You go. So I, I mean, this is an advanced technique. So if the the witness is fighting you, right? You say okay. You go and get your big old book. Right, and then you plop it down. Let's go through this. And you take your time, and you're like, this witness now understands that if he disagrees with you, you are going to spend, it's going to be excruciating. Right, and they're going to look like a fool. Right, and so you do that a couple times, then at the end, you they're just saying yes to whatever you want to say so they can get off the stand. Right, and, and, and that's where you try and introduce words like, that word, words that are going to help support your theme, like, you know, hurled, or, you know, devastated, or, you know, crushed, shattered. I mean, these very visual, descriptive words that are also going to help you in closing with the storytelling, but also help to fix that in the juror's mind, because hurled is way more interesting than, you know, well, the, and then the plaintiff went through the went through the windshield of the car. The plaintiff was hurled through the windshield of the car. Is way more interesting of a story to your well, jury, sure. and and but it also can if they object and they won't answer, it can also get you off of rhythm. Uh, yeah, I don't and I don't I don't see that as the case. I think it, it gets me benefits because the jury the jury is also sitting there saying, yeah, I think he was hurled. I don't know why. The guy didn't just say yes to hurled because after these other five or six questions, it's he clearly was hurled. Yeah, my point is is that 
be careful, be selective with those battles. Yeah, sure. I mean, you've got to go through, and part of you know what we talked about in our CLE last month, and we haven't done a podcast on it, we will, on trial strategy, is, is, is the heart of it is selecting your theme, and then after that, going over the facts of your case that are most supportive of your theme, and how to present those facts in a way that most supports the theme, including what words you're going to use to try and get it. And you get the, you get the plaintiff or the defendant not only using, you know, agreeing to your story, but agreeing to your words. First of all, it means it's no longer argumentative. It's what he said. And so I can use it and I can use it throughout the rest of the trial. And they say, oh, well, he said, he, Your Honor, we object to the word hurled as being argumentative. And I say, what are you talking about? The, the defendant said he was hurled from the car, Your Honor. How can I be arguing with the defendant when that's his own word that he agreed with? Well, uh, okay, objection to, uh, uh, overruled. So, you know, I agree you have to be, that has to be a conscious choice, but I would never let a witness get away with, get away with doing that without, without teaching them the lesson. Because the lesson... Right, which we both agree on. Yeah, the lesson is, is what's important when the witness tries to misbehave. Because if you're asking your questions right on cross, they should not... And the judge knows what he's... I mean, I, I, I did have a judge fight with me for two or three hours um, last year or a couple of years ago in a trial... Um, Ladies and gentlemen, don't fight with the judges. He wouldn't ask. Well, this was a case where I had to. Mm-hmm. And, and I would say, you know, that that's kind of an advanced topic, too. This is an <laughs> issue where you... How to make the tribunal. Where, you know, I would not... Well, part of the, the problem was is that he wouldn't tell me that that's what he was doing. He would stop me every few minutes and say, Counsel, we're not interested in... We're not interested in that. We're interested in the facts and the history. <laughs> and that went on for two or three hours wow. before finally... We had a break, and I was talking with my with co-counsel, and we realized he is not going to let us ask. It's it's the questions are leading, and the judge even said once that conversation was not your conversation. You want to know what happened in that conversation? You ask him who was there, what was said, and let him tell you. You don't tell him and ask him to agree with you or not. And I I you know I I made my and the the trick in that situation I would never. Making sure the tribunal knows the rules. I, I, I would never advocate actually fighting with the judge. Um, you have to preserve the issue. In, in that and case, if you're practicing criminal law. Yeah. In, in that case, in that case, I was, I was. The reason I had the battle with the judge is because I had no idea, and frankly, neither did any of the other lawyers in the room, including opposing counsel, who came up to me afterwards and said. Yeah, I had no idea what was going on either. Um, nobody knew what was the judge's problem with the questions until much later. But I do think you have to, you know, you know, a, a judge who, who openly says, well, counsel, you're not to lead this witness. I do think you have to say, judge, if you says all my questions, you know, what did it... Um, Larry Posner say uh, the presentation. He said, "You know, Judge, my questions are leading. I'm allowed to ask leading questions. On, the rules allow me to ask leading questions on cross. 
all of my questions are leading and they'll continue to be leading unless your honor, if your honor would like to order me not to ask leading questions, then I will obey, obey the court's order. Um, but, um, you know, and kind of put the judge in the position of actually saying on the record explicitly, you cannot you ask, cannot leading, ask questions. leading questions of this opposing witness. And then you've created you pretty much a, got your guaranteed, a, uh, guaranteed, uh, uh, reversal. And, you know, um, that's a crappy place to be in because nobody wants to be, you know, yeah. up on appeal. Trial number two automatically. Yeah. And, yeah, redo the trial. But, you know, you got sometimes you got to do what you got to do. Um, you know, I, I, I think that, um, you know, let's talk for, for a few minutes kind of um, about this issue a little more in depth about kind of let's call him the runaway witness the witness that just refused to be controlled the witness that 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 has you know perhaps the professional witness who's been to answering the question class um you know like in quantico virginia they have classes for fbi and and uh and uh, DEA agents on how to answer questions at trial. Um, you know, one of the things you're going to get if you use that style where you say, okay, you did this, is sometimes one of these professional witnesses just going to look at you. And then when the judge looks over at him and says, you know, Mr. Witness, oh, I'm sorry, was that a question? Or you get a judge who will say, you know, or opposing counsel say, you know, that he's making statements, he's not asking questions. Um, <clears throat> problem, well, the benefit of that is that the jury understands that it's a question based on the tone of your voice. And usually when I, when I've, on the few occasions when I've gotten that objection, um, it's overruled because the judge understands also that it's a question. And the witness really understands that it's a question. And I think that the other side loses points with the jury um, for trying to be cute about it. Um, I mean, even... It would be easier if the, the juror, juries just had like a scoreboard and like awarded points. Awarded as, points, as yeah. They, yeah. As we would go. <coughs> it certainly would make... Take away... Make going to... Going settlement to, negotiations. It, yeah, it would certainly make going to verdict much less likely. <laughs> In cases, because they're, the jury would be instructed Sorry, and that it's settled. image of <laughs> with points. Yeah, yeah no, I've been in this voting. situation a lot, but I've heard a lot of people talk about how the faces and the, you know, the nodding and the cues they're getting from some jurors end up being like quite the opposite later on. Like the person who was smiling the whole time, who you well, thought you that was in your back pocket, ultimately turns out to be the person that hated your guts and so, well, so let was, me the, give you was a, the last juror that wouldn't agree. Let me give you a, a, a for instance. Um, one of the questions we had after uh, this judge put, us, put me through this ordeal in front of the jury for two hours reprimanding me Basically, every third question I asked was, do we move for a mistrial? And the question, you know, obviously we consulted with a client and, and the question kind of turned on, all right, well, does did this do damage to us? Because, you know, the judge, even though my questions were proper, did the judge make me look like I wasn't didn't know what I was doing? And that, you know, it reflected poorly on the client or 
did we, was it severe enough that it garnered sympathy from the jurors? Okay, well, we did surveys after the trial and the uh, witnesses, or the jurors, almost all, all of them we'd talked to, um, would say some other reason why they agreed with the other side because we lost. You know, we didn't believe this witness or we didn't, you know, like this. But every single one of them said, you know, when asked about the trial counsel and what they thought of them, they said, I think the judge was unfair to that younger attorney or I think I thought the, the judge was, you know, that that was inappropriate or there was some sort of expression that they sympathized and that they thought that I was being treated unfairly. But, but that didn't, wasn't didn't enough matter, to, yeah. to sway them in the case. Shoot. Um, so, you know, I think you can get those nods and those yes. And, you know, if it's not on a critical issue, the jurors are smart enough to realize that, you know, just because you're being picked on or just because, you know, um, you, know you're, you, you asked a question that they really agreed with, that the case may not turn on that question. So, you know, I'm cautious about relying on that for overall case determinations. However, I think it can be useful for seeing how the cross is going generally, as long as I'm getting through my chapters and I'm paying attention. I also think it helps with the tone, um, like with a runaway witness. If you can tell that the jury is getting angry at the witness or is getting tired with the witness, there's a lot more you can do. I think Roger Dodd, uh, in a, in one of his books said, you know, you can get your your level of indignation or exasperation with the witness can get up to the same level as that of the jury, but never above. Never ever above. Yeah. I mean, if the jury is furious with a the witness, then you can you can do anger. You can, you know, not be angry, but you can do anger because the jury will righteous indignation you'll be you know the jury will be like right on because they they probably wanted to go up and smack them um you know as far as witnesses that won't answer the question or that insist on you know running on despite being asked questions like i said in that sort of piecemeal sort of way where you really can't be Nobody's going to say he's just trying to answer the question if you stick with one fact per question in a row. If you say, the ball was red, right? And he goes, well, you know, it was a... Oh, and let's the, talk I mean, about... It's more of a deep <coughs> salmon Let's talk color. about crossing the street. Oh, I mean, even with that, with that kind of thing, you get a witness who wants to play that game. I mean, one of the things that I'll do, okay, was the ball blue? No. Was the ball green? No. Was it magenta? No, was it yellow? Anytime he's like the ball was red. He's like the ball was. He's like, well, I think the ball. No, 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 sir. You said the ball wasn't red, so I want to make sure that we understand all the other. You know that it, what color this ball was it? Was it uh, purple? No. Yeah, I mean, to the point. You don't want to carry it too far, but to the point where you the jury understands. People say they don't understand the question. Yeah, I I will. I'll be like, okay. Which part of the question don't you understand? And again, it depends on the vibe from the jury. And well, it, this and is more in depots. Yeah, in depots, in depots, I'll tend to 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 
<clears throat> you know, there are things you can do in depots you can't do in trial, obviously. But, um, you know, if the question really is really simple to understand and the witness is playing games with me by saying they don't understand the question, I'll break it down. I'll be like, okay, so you understand what a stoplight is, right? <laughs> you understand that it has three colors. One of them's green. One of them's yellow. Yes, yes. And one of them's red. Yes. And red means stop. Yes. And if you don't stop, that's bad. Yes. And eventually the witness gets in their mind that I will... If the witness has a question... This goes back to your theme of punishment. Yeah. the witness. If the witness is, has a question in their mind, I can either help my case or and look stupid, or I can look or like a liar, or I can look like I'm telling the truth and screw my case, they're going to go with protecting themselves and screw the case, forget the case. I want to look credible. Yeah, I want to look like, I want to look like, you know, I don't want to look like a fool to these people because they have that same sort of impulse to not, you know, to, to, to protect their image and their, you know, things. So, um, you know, so a couple other things on runaway witnesses. I find that in the, that in most cases, the best way uh, and, and the way that I handle it is just to repeat the question. Makes sense. I mean, that I think is the most effective they they don't answer the question that I asked. I, I appreciate asked. that answer, but my question was no. See, I don't I usually have it. Well, it I don't add any predatory language, and I don't and I don't ask. And I in trial, I won't even add like, isn't that isn't that so or isn't that correct? I'll cut that off because that does away with some of my some of my primacy and recency power. Sure. So I'll be like, you know, straight the statements. Red. The light was red. Well, I'm not sure the light was red. Well, I don't know if you could say it was red or not. I mean, it was coming, but the light was red. So you don't even say correct? No. To make it into a question? I, it is a question. Everybody in the room understands that it's a question. If the, if the witness pretends like they don't think it's a question, and if the judge says, counsel, you, you need to ask, you need that's not really a question, you, you ask the next three questions, the light was red. Isn't that so? <laughs> and you drove through the intersection. Isn't that so? And you do it two or three or four times until everybody's like, okay, yes, you're right. we understand. And then you usually you can go back to doing it the There's same other way. Yeah, but I'll repeat it. And you worry you're going to get the asked and answered explanation, but um, but you really don't. Usually by the second or third time I've asked it, if the witness hasn't answered the question, the judge will jump in and say, Mr. Witness, you answer his question. That, that last answer, he'll say, I've already answered that question. Or his counsel will jump up and say, ask and answer your No, he hasn't answered the question. Mr. Witness, you answer that question. And, you know, usually that's enough to take care of it. And there are some more things you can do when it gets more blatant or when the, the judge, it, um, you know, won't let you... Um, you know, doesn't agree with you, but I think we're running low on time. Well, so. I like the Roger Dodd tips and the, the punish them theme. I think that 
That's good insight. Yeah, I mean, it, once his, a, uh, his he's got a video. The audio, I watched the video and I have his book. I watched the video. I read the book. They're good. I, we we hired we hired him to no. see, good. and that's your own fault because we actually we actually hired him to teach a full day of his seminar at the fall forum the first year that I was running it, and you were supposed to be there. I know. I had some things to do. The cat was filthy. Uh, I had a red box I needed to take back. You know, that's a machine, right? It's not like I convinced the guy at red box not to assess a late fee. I mean, it just happens. You're pathetic, and apparently you don't have iTunes. There is immediacy. Immediacy. You still use DVDs, which I think says a lot. I didn't say DVDs. And there's some gray hairs in your beard. Things are starting to come together. I'm, I'm 40 now. I'm old. It, I'm it's gonna a this year too. I know, and you're going to have sad. gray hair in your beard if you had a beard. It's very sad. All right. Well, thank you very much for listening. This has been the uh, Trial Lawyer Podcast, and uh, we hope you'll subscribe and uh, rate us on iTunes. Thank you very much.